0: This, is, this really is an emergency episode because I'm, I'm, I'm plugged in, I'm standing up. I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> I'm actually regretting... This should be an I'm a feminist about I'm a feminist, but I'm slightly regretting this jumpsuit because I think it's a very good look in still photos. I forgot I was on Instagram Live and I'm not sure how it's going to video, especially when I'm doing this kind of thing. <laughs> I feel like it might be very flattering and then incredibly unflattering. I was aware when I was on the side, I was like, how's it working on the side? I'm a feminist, but I'm now really glad I wore it. (laughs) Just got my ass cheered there accidentally. (laughs) Accidentally. Are there any accidents, Dr. Freud? Do you want to go?
1: Yes. Yes. I'm a feminist, but last week we had dinner with these people we don't know really well and the husband looked at my husband and said, oh man, you look really trim. And then he turned to me and said, how's your comedy tour? And I was like, fuck you.
0: I'm a feminist, but today, because this is an emergency episode on at three o'clock this afternoon and I was sort of trying to prepare material and stuff, I realised I'd left prepping of myself too late so I've turned up with wet hair which I thought was going to have that lovely beachy wahoo look but actually I've just scrunched mousse into it and it's still wet and it just looks like I've got out of the shower I've also overdone it on the magnetic eyeliner because I was worried that the magnetic eyelashes would fall off if it wasn't sufficient but now under these heavy lights I feel them sliding like like fridge magnets off an oily fridge door (laughs) but I've decided to style it out because it's an emergency episode, so it's good that I look like an emergency.
1: (laughs) Mine's also about hair. Uh, I'm a feminist, but the cameos, you know, on the app, the cameos that I'm doing to help raise money for Choose Love, I have done none because I have not had the correct makeup on to present someone with that video. I'll get it done. Thing.
0: i've taken a cameo video before now if, if you don't know what a cameo is it's uh people who are in the public eye uh make videos to say happy birthday to your sister or good luck to your gran or you know that kind of thing and then usually they take the money for themselves but sindhu v and i are saintly human beings <laughs> who are better than those other people so we give the money to choose love
1: uh i just didn't know about the app till now yeah, okay fair uh, enough. <laughs> um, yeah
0: basically this is how we're selling ourselves uh our reward will be great in heaven and I do mean the gay nightclub around the corner because <laughs> the guy there loves the guilty feminist and has bought a cameo from me, so I'm in for free forever. <laughs> um, um, I have taken a full video, watched it back, thought, oh no, and cancelled it. I've gone and put eyeliner on it again. That's true. Um, I'm a feminist, but... When I had to do a very quick picture to advertise this show on Instagram, the first picture of me and Cindy V that came up was of us at a film premiere, my film premiere that Cindy was in. No need to go on about it. Um, stop it. You're embarrassing me. Yes, I did write a film and do a cameo in it. Cameo in it. Yes, that's right. I've understood the name of that app now. Um, and uh, the first picture was... So I thought, oh, I'll use that one because we looked so glamorous. I am in a slightly inappropriate dress to advertise this show because it's a really plunging neckline. I don't know if I can wear that dress again after the uh, lockdown because I didn't wear a bra for a year and a half. And I, d- I really do believe that my breasts have responded to the lack of scaffolding. Uh, but at that time, just a bit of tit-tape and, you know, shoulders back. And, uh, like, if I just stood like this with tit-tape underneath, I was absolutely fine. I think I was anyway. I was probably kidding myself. Um, uh, but, anyway, I was so glamorous, that picture. So I popped that on Instagram thinking, yes. was very, very pleased when a few people, inappropriately given the show, said, nice rack. Um, I thought that's not right for this show and also, yes, thank you. And now, because I've come like this, I feel like that was false advertising. And if anybody's come on the basis of that picture and wants their money back, I would totally understand it. I mean, the money's going to choose love, though, so don't be a cunt. (laughs)
1: I'm a feminist, but the other day when I was talking to my 88-year-old dad, who said to me, Darling, the way you're talking, I just want you to know, no matter what happens in your life, with your marriage, I will always be here to take care of you. I felt so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. That's nice. That's really nice. Because you can be a feminist, but it's nice to have someone else pay for shit. (laughs) (laughs) Word. Word on the street.
0: Live from 21 Soho in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents an emergency episode of The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Bronson's White, guest co host, B., and our very special guests, Neil Afar, Hedayat, Hamasa, Kostani, Zahnash, Halatzai, and Areej Osman, talking about Afghanistan. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists, our hypocrisies, and insecurities which undermine them. It's getting more ridiculous as I go on, but there's nothing I can do at this point. I'd like to back the truck up, can't. I'm Deborah Francis-White, with me is Cindy V, and we are doing an emergency episode about Afghanistan. Thank you so much, everyone, coming in at the last minute. There are some seats in the front row and nothing bad happens in the front row of this comedy show. Um, now, we pack the top with some comedy uh, so that... Because people listen to The Guilty Feminist because it's funny and it doesn't seem like sad, sad, sad hour um, where everything's traumatic and it doesn't feel like you're doing your homework. Um, that is how we differ from Women's Hour. Um, LAUGHTER we have. There'll be a number of jokes in this show, but we tend to pack those at the top. Once our guests come on, we might have a gear change, which you might notice. Uh, not that our guests, I've already talked to them, they're all funny, so they might make jokes. Uh, but the top, this is an emergency episode for Afghanistan, but one of the features of the Guilty Feminist is we do funny at the top. Uh, so for that, I have invited one of my very favourite Guilty Feminist co-pilots. It's the incredible Cinderbee! <laughs>
1: So, oh, why oh don't God. you, and hold I, on, This is this I just, Can I just say yeah. one thing? If yeah. you don't wear them to sleep, they're not pyjamas. <laughs> just saying, sorry. Where, but where then why, when
0: you walked in, did I say, oh, we're both in jumpsuits? Oh no, you're in pyjamas.
1: Because that's what you call them. <laughs> is pyjamas an Indian word? Well, I mean, we have a word in Hindi and Urdu called pyjama, but it's just the bottom. Oh yeah, it's just the bottom. And oh, least, I thought it was an and easy If I came in here with just the bottom, it'd just be weird. It'd be like, mm. what? It'd be we like, could have charged. Where... We could have charged more. Yeah, well, yeah, you <laughs> you you it's could've. a
0: fundraiser, Sindhu. Do you okay. care about shoes, love, or not? I
1: know. I've got.
0: Yeah, know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is not normally how the guilty feminist goes. If you've not been here before, yeah. people don't normally chant,
1: "Take it off." So, yeah. so yeah. early in the show, it's a feminist show. But uh, listen, you know, I think I look. The other day, my teenage daughter said to me something. Is it get out the nip? Take out the nip? Free the nip. Free the nip. <laughs> and, yes. I, and I was like, what, what, what are you saying? And she said, something, something, free the nip. And I was like, oh, free your nipples. And I was like, oh, is that why you're dressed like that? <laughs> uh, and she said yes, because she knew before I said anything she should, you know, because offense is the best form of defense. So, uh, yeah, her nips were very free. Um, <laughs> listen, I, listen. So I don't mind that. Generation
0: Z... They're going it's to free fun. the nip before they're done. You know what free nip is about. On Instagram, in fact, we are on Instagram Should live now. You this? cannot take it off because Instagram will immediately block it. Because Instagram yeah. is, has some algorithm that it can see female nipples, I guess. Because men have their tops off on Instagram. But I accidentally once post a free the nip shot. I didn't, well, I sort of, I say accidentally. <laughs> Someone came on the show naked. Who came on the show naked? Gina? Oh, Amanda Palmer, that's right. Amanda Palmer came on the show naked. I wasn't expecting it. She said she was going to, but I thought she was joking. (laughs) Uh, I know she does that at rock concerts and stuff, but we were in the basement of a Waterstones. Now, (laughs) it's true. It was the Atwood book this is true and so it was a
1: sort of book club type show okay. Margaret Atwood was upstairs oh. I mean to be fair Margaret Atwood would love it she would love it and I've been to many I'm going to now have that in my book clubs is uh, you got to come in without your top on nothing no she had nothing on nothing oh. on at all no nothing no top where no bottom where was
0: I where was I? I I think it's a different context in a stadium though to the basement of a Waterstones because right, yeah. everyone was like oh 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 because it was a bit light for it do you know what I mean Anyway, afterwards, out of solidarity, she posed with me with her banjo, naked. So I just went like that to show one breast. And uh,
1: Instagram... uh, Said, no breasts. We want no breasts. They
0: yeah they they uh, they they immediately it that sounded like it. they
1: clutched it but they didn't <laughs> that looks like they, they grabbed, clutched it they did
0: they... to cover it they co- and they and I thought oh something's gone wrong so I reposted it because I didn't understand You're like no lady I, no yes it, it, was a, it was such an it was such an knee jerk I just didn't just so naive anyway um, they said to me if you post this again you'll be off Instagram permanently and you'll never be allowed back on so I had to repost it with a sort of little sticker or something over the uh-huh. nipple um so when people
1: say free, free the, nip, the nip... that's what's going so on. So
0: Instagram Live, for you... I don't you. think when my daughter... <laughs> yeah, oh,
1: do it, do it, do it, do it. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, but when my daughter says that, it's not because of all this politics. She says that because she knows... Because, you know, sometimes teenage girls wake up and their first thought is, I'm going to fuck with my mom. <laughs> I, I swear, they just wake up and they're like, "Ah, oh, yeah, today's that day. And then they come in the kitchen and then that mom is me. <laughs> and then it all gets extremely grisly and all the men in the house leave. They're like, they're just... Her brother leaves. My husband leaves. just like no, no. My husband's texting me from they had gone on holiday and uh, texting me about the girls and saying, can you call them? They're upstairs and there seems to be a problem. <laughs> I'm like you were in, in Denmark. I'm in, England. You, they're up. You, you could no no no. There's a problem. Oh wow. Yeah. Because, wow. Because they had had a, hu- Who that had a huge. Who here has sisters that they can fight to the death? Yeah, you can fight to the death with your sister, and it can sound like someone is getting murdered. And how, by the way, who here cries? Yeah, yes. So they're fighting, they're crying, they're screaming. My husband is like, I'm gonna leave and just leave them here, and you can call from England and manage them. So I was like, that's fine. So I called them, and I said, you know, your dad is very concerned, so keep it up. Are you ready for
0: some stand-up comedy? Yeah. Then please welcome to the mic she's already
1: holding. It's the incredible Sindhu Yay. Yay! Hello. Uh, thank you. I, I'm going to do very little because we have a great show and we have to get ahead and so on and so forth. Anyway, a lot of people have had this question in the last year and a half. How's your mental health? How's your mental health in lockdown? Sindhu, how was your mental health in lockdown? What did you do? I'll tell you how my mental health was in lockdown. My mental health was such that in the middle of lockdown, I started having girlfriend chat with my husband. Do you understand what I'm saying? So like extremely confusing for everybody, but I became desperate. I started, it was like kind of like a breakdown. You know, you just, you don't know what's reality anymore. So he was watching TV and I was reading and then I turned to him and I said, did you ever think you would marry someone with such long legs? Because isn't that a great girl question? You have thought about that, right? Yeah, of course you have. And my husband, because he also wants to survive lockdown, you know. He did this thing where he was like, um... No. I looked at him and I thought, what? I fully expect this man after 23 years of marriage to be like, I have never fucking thought about that in my life. And that is my cue to question the entire project of my marriage. Say things like, my mother was right, I should not have married a foreigner. You know, stuff like that. Anyway, uh, because in India, we call all white people foreigners. Just, just, just to let you know. And the reason people say, well, why do you do that? It's because when you came, you were foreigners. We were like, well, who are you? Why are you here? You're from a foreign land. And they were like, man, now we own this land. Anyway, so that is what my husband should have said. And I should have been like, I knew it. And that, But he didn't. He was like, yeah, no I, never, no, I didn't. And I was like, oh. So then, mental health. I could have left it, been like, This is great, but I took it up one gear. Because I thought, let's really see what's going on here. So I said to him, yeah, well, of course, you know, because after all, you're Danish, which is a meaningless follow-up statement. (laughs) Except it's meaningless only to the untrained ear. Because to the trained ear, which is usually your best girlfriend, pal, that question obviously means, because you're Danish, you're from a race that's very tall. And if you're very tall, you've definitely thought about the height of your spouse. Because if you're from a very tall race, you don't want to marry someone very short. That would be weird. Or maybe you don't want to marry someone so tall. That would be weird. You've thought a lot about your spouse and his or her legs. I was extremely tall in India. Do you understand what I'm saying? Extremely tall. I remember my aunt said to my mother, Oh, too bad we cannot give her to circus. I remember that. Okay? I always thought about the height of my spouse. So obviously when I said, ah, oh, you know, because you're Danish, but I thought his ear is untrained. He's going to be like, what? But my husband like was, looked at me and said, I know, right? <laughs> I was like, what? Who is, what is happening? So then I thought I have to just one more gear. Please, please, just one more gear, you know? Because that's how self-sabotage works. <laughs> so just one more gear. So I took it up the last gear and I said, yeah, because, I mean, after all, I am Indian which is code for I should be so much shorter. And that should, you know, give him something. He has to have analyzed this. So I said, you know, because I'm Indian. And he said, you know, it's funny. I, you're right. I met so many Indians through you. And like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I'm so happy I'm married to him. <laughs> and I felt much better. Um, yeah. Because I think that, you know, you, you shouldn't, if you want to stay sane, you have to be careful what you talk to your spouse about. Um, And you certainly shouldn't start doing girlfriend chat with your spouse, but I succeeded. And I can tell you the trick, and then we're going to finish the stand-up bit because we've got to hurry. I think here's how my husband has managed it. In lockdown, my husband came up with this technique. I would ask him a question in which he had zero fucking interest, right? Zero. And he would look at me, and you could see that he would reach into the back of his head, not actually, but he would reach, and he would think, what is the minimum effort I can exert? (laughs) to show her that I have a modicum of interest in what she's saying, and then just say that sentence, she will piss off, I'll go back to Netflix. (laughs) And he did that every single time. I had a crazy haircut just before lockdown, crazy haircut, not good for me. Like, my hair's usually long, it was crazy. I came home, I asked my kids, what do you think of my hair? And my daughter was like, oh my God, you look like Karen. (laughs) And I didn't know who a Karen was, and I was like, who's a Karen? And my son said, you know, the kind of woman who complains about the salad dressing at (laughs) ZZ's. I was like, this is very specific. Do we, do we Do we know this bitch? Who is this? Now I know who a Karen is. And, you know, I don't mind that my kids called me that because it shows I've raised them to not see color. Anyway. So, yeah. So, but then I went to my husband and I said to him, what do you think of my hairstyle? Which was the worst hairstyle I've ever had. I said, so what do you think of my hair? And he looked at me and you could see. Tick, 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 tick. And he said, yes. I was like, yes. And then he went, very much. And that was that. Anyway, you guys are in for a treat this afternoon. Thank you so much for coming out.
0: Hello, Guilty Feminists. Thank you for joining us for this very special episode just to let you know that I'm on Cameo at the moment for Choose Love. There are not many videos in the series left, so book me if you'd like me to send a special message to a friend or family member or for yourself. Also, lots of other wonderful people are on there as well. Juliet Stevenson, Olivia Coleman, Cindy V. Check out everybody who's supporting Choose Love at the moment for those who are fleeing the Taliban. It was truly remarkable to have such a wonderful audience back. Uh, for the emergency episode, thank you f- to all who came out and please join us on the 10th and 11th of September live on the South Bank at Queen Elizabeth Hall. On the 10th of September, my co-host is Susan Wakoma, and our guest is Nina Conti, who's coming along with Monkey and Jess Robinson is performing some extremely uplifting feminist music for us. It'll be like Feminist Church. On the 11th of September, uh, my guest co-host is Kima Bob herself. And Susie Ruffle is coming along to do some stand up comedy for us. We have She Drew the Gun, who've never been on before, the amazing band, giving us feminist uplift music. And we also have some very special guests talking about the rights raid and uh, looking at our rights as LGBTQ people and also uh, the policing bill, border control, and having some important conversations about where we are and what we can do next. Um, I really hope to see you at either or both of those shows. Please come and be with us. God, it's nice to be back in the same room again. It makes so much difference and I think makes our podcast really the best of what it is. As always, for tickets for our live show, you can find the link at guiltyfeminist.com under live shows. Now back to the podcast.
1: And now, please put your hands together, start clapping, start cheering, go wild for the very funny Deborah Francis World! Thank you.
0: I have to do new stand up each time, because that's how podcasts works. I didn't think it through when I started it. Um, so I wrote this this afternoon on my show notes um, here. So uh, that is why I have this, just to explain myself before I begin. And the reason that I need to do that is I was adopted. Um, I, I didn't think it had affected me. I really, really didn't. But one time I worked, it sort of slightly twigged once. One time I worked uh, with, this is even more poignant now, with a baby gurgling underneath, isn't it? Um, I, that's, I've asked for that. Um, LAUGHTER Uh, One time I worked with a Lebanese-French film director who, uh, just out of the blue, said, what age were you when you were adopted? And I said, how did you know I was adopted? And he just went, I know. (laughs) How old were you? And I said, ten days. And he said, and where were you for that time? And I said, just in the hospital and looked after by whatever nurse was on the shift. And he went, "Mm, that is why you like attention and that is why you like food. (laughs) Now, at the time, I thought rude rude. Accurate, but rude. But this week I watched an academic lecture on YouTube by an adoption and addiction expert called Paul Sunderland, and he confirmed what the director said. Rude. Also another rude man. Um, it was a, I mean, he wasn't specifically talking about me, but it felt like he was. Uh, it was a long lecture, but the main thing I took from it is if you're adopted at birth, you're probably very clever. Um, you can watch the lecture, but you don't need to. That's all you really need to know enormous great big fuck off brain it's because the first thing that happens is a trauma and so you get a shot of cortisol to the brain which is a growth hormone and so you have a great big huge throbbing brain um that's true it is a trauma because inside the womb you're hearing your mother's cadences and you're feeding off her like some awful parasite (laughs) it is awful it's quite science fiction but uh you're you're waiting to meet her and if you are ripped away Uh, that is a trauma, and then you're like, oh, God, it's a different nurse every two hours. Um, Now, there are a few other things of use apart from the enormous size of my incredibly clever brain, Uh, so I'll throw them in. Sometimes, due to your huge, sobbing brain, you have big visions about what you can do in the world, but then you sabotage yourself because inside you think, A, I'm not worthy because the first thing that happened was that your carer gave you away, and B, bad things always happen because the first thing that happened was that your carer gave you away. So here you are now, today, with your big brain, not writing your screenplay that you've already been paid to write. Shut up. That's you, that's not me. Shut up. You're adopted. I'm not adopted. Shut up! I hate you. You're not my real mother anyway. The next thing I learned from the academic lecture uh, was that there's a Chinese proverb that says the beginning of wisdom is calling things by their proper name. And adoption doesn't really describe what happens. It needs to be called relinquishment and adoption because the big trauma is in the relinquishment. Now... Uh, The cortex, which is the rational part of your brain that makes the decision to get here today on time and where are we going to sit, all of that's done with your cortex. And before you're three, that's not online. And that is why it is so pleasant to brunch with a (laughs) two-year-old. Yes, I use brunch as a verb, don't judge me. I'm adopted, I'm traumatised. I brunch. Um, Now, the limbic brain is where the emotions happen. And that is online from the beginning, and that is why it is so pleasant to brunch with a two-year-old. The reptilian part of the brain is the one that we share with reptiles, and that is why it is so pleasant to brunch with a snake. (laughs) The limbic brain sends a message uh, to the reptilian brain, hey, we need to mobilize, we need to fight. And the reptile is obviously the one that goes. (sighs) um, And... It's very good that the limbic system sends stress hormones to the reptilian brain um, if there's a tiger coming, because that's what makes us run fast. But uh, if you are a baby, well, babies famously are terrible at fighting and fleeing. And that's why they're so cute. So we will fight and flee on their behalf. In that case, if you've been given away first thing, everything about your brain is going, run, 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 run. But your legs are going, I'm a fucking baby. (laughs) fight 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 with these fists these adorable fists that all they want to do is cling on to mummy's finger um no you've got to punch a tiger with them and then that's how you get traumatized as an adoptee so a lot of adopted children comfort eat sugar and um shut up you're adopted um so uh we are always on edge because the first thing that happened to us is we were abandoned so every single day when we leave the house we think I might get abandoned at a bus stop um even though we're on our own uh there's a feeling like what if I just leave myself at this bus stop Uh, I might leave myself on the bus this is what's going on apparently in all these weird parts of the brain that we're not uh, cognizant of this is why I haven't written my screenplay if you were listening to this and I owe you one um Hello on Instagram Live, any producers waiting for any material from me? It's because I'm adopted. Are you going to have a go at me? Are you? I'm traumatised. <laughs> personality trauma, pre-verbal trauma. Now, the reptilian system is going, who have we got to fight? Who have we got to fight? Probably a tiger. Why are we about ready to fight? So the limbic system, which is the emotional system, it starts to uh, eat cake. Um, LAUGHTER Because it is literally sending a message to the reptile brain. Stand down, dude. It's fine. We're eating cake so we can't be being chased by a tiger. That is genuinely what's going on when you comfort eat. No one would stop for a brownie when in grave danger. I mean, how good is the brownie, though? Because I can eat and run. Um, I've run and eaten before. Who hasn't run and eaten a brownie? Anyway. um, But this is the idea of it. This is what your brain is trying to do. Basically, top line if you're having a snack, you can't be under attack. (laughs) I made up that rhyme with my overdeveloped cortex. Huge, throbbing cortex. Since I found that out this week, when I get hungry, I ask myself, is this my reptile brain looking for comfort or am I hungry? And sometimes I realize it's my inner snake and I'm like, fuck you, buddy, because I'm really phobic of snakes. I hate the idea I have a snake in my brain. It's really upsetting me. But I have discovered I'm not hungry as much as I think I am. In fact, I am trying to comfort my limbic system. So, my amygdala is over alert. Um, now, the amygdala is your inner, you're the smoke alarm in your brain that tells you, hey, you're, something's gone wrong, there's a fire. But my amygdala goes off just when I'm making toast. Um, that's the problem. So, basically, what I learned from the lecture is the reason I'm a stand-up comic is I'm looking for you to love me unconditionally. No signs of that. Um, one whoop. Thank you very much. I'll be going home with you, whoever you are. Don't leave me on a bus stop, please. Don't abandon me on the bus. Um, and I'm trying to regulate my cortisol by overworking my adrenaline. A lot of adopted people swim with sharks. I do this. You're the sharks. Enjoy. Um, Also, early bonding is very, very, very important. And there's a whole thing about attachment theory. We don't have time to go through here, but you get the idea. Babies and small children are designed to attach themselves to their carer. That's why they cry so much is they're going, notice me, notice me. All mammals do it. And interestingly, people who were given into care, um, it's a different but similar trauma than being adopted at birth, because uh, sometimes you can remember it. But uh, also, interestingly, we see a lot of the same issues with people who were early boarders. If you were sent to boarding school, or six or seven or eight, teenage, fine, it's different. You You might not have enjoyed it, but it's different. It's not the same kind of trauma. But six, seven or eight, it's a similar trauma, and we see a lot of similar signs. In fact, it can be even worse, because you're told it's a privilege to go to boarding school. It's not a privilege to go into care. And I did my research on how many people in the Cabinet were in care. <laughs> None. No, no former prime ministers who were in care as children. That's interesting, isn't it? But he said the biggest mental health problem we see with adoptees is religiosity. And that he's not having to go at anyone with faith at all. He's saying, if you're in a fundamental religion, and religion, you know, it's like religious mania, it takes over your life. And I was like, oh my God. I wonder if that was why I was so captured by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, by the way, this, this is a cult. Um, uh, lock the doors. Um, LAUGHTER so easy to start a cult accidentally if you've been in one. Um, uh, All of this stuff, it just really made me think about the trauma because one thing he said, and I've heard this before, is that when they look at the trauma of children who are refugees, if they are with a primary care, if their attachments are not disrupted, then the trauma is a lot less. Of course, there is still trauma, but the worst thing you can do is to have your attachments disrupted as a child. So this week... When I saw images of mothers literally passing their babies over fences to British soldiers to get them away from the Taliban, you think, how desperate must that mother be? How traumatized will that baby be? Because my birth mother knew she was going to give me away. She was in a safe place. It was all planned. You know, there was someone to take me and my my parents are amazing and all of that. I've met my birth mother. Imagine being given over a fence and you would never even know... Who had given you away? uh, Imagine the trauma of the mother. And so it was then I was like, we have to do an emergency episode this weekend. And with that, I would like to welcome our first guest. Our first guest is the CEO and co-founder of Refugee Trauma Initiative, an organization which supports refugees and frontline workers to deal with stress and trauma. She has worked in Pakistan on the Turkish-Syrian border in Calais and Greece on emergency response. She's a peace advocate. She has advocated for a more inclusive peace deal in Afghanistan, and she's a writer. Her organization is a partner of Choose Love and this is a fundraiser for Choose Love today. Please welcome Zalashd Halimzai. So, Zarnasht, can you give us a potted history of Afghanistan and why the Taliban... You're Afghan yourself? I am. And why the Taliban came into existence in the first place? So, I don't feel particularly funny, but I'm really relieved you guys keep saying fuck because uh, this is one of those
2: situations.
0: Oh, yeah, please, Um, swear away. We're going into a gear change now. No one's expecting you to be funny about the history of Afghanistan. um, So... My, I was born in Afghanistan, and my family left in
2: '92 under very similar circumstances. And that was after an 11-year-old war in which the U.S. and the U.K. and a bunch of other countries armed militia groups uh, to fight against the Soviet Union. And in the 90s, after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the Afghans kind of breathed a sigh of relief thinking that the international community was going to come and we were going to have an inclusive government, an election, and instead there was a total near withdrawal of Western interest from Afghanistan. And it collapsed into what they called a civil war, but in fact it wasn't. Um, This is something that's being talked about right now a lot, that Afghanistan is going to go into civil war. It's not. It's a proxy war. Every single neighbor is involved. The U.S. has been arming a bunch of groups all these years it's not a civil war it's a proxy war after that happened the country plunged into total darkness and lawlessness and the taliban came out out of that context
0: right so if britain and america hadn't invaded decades ago there would be no taliban
2: well if there was no cold war there would be no taliban okay
1: and can i just ask a question so you know, when you look at trying to give responsibility, because that sometimes makes people feel like they know what's going on. They can say it was that fault, that fault. The Cold War is not something we can look at and say, "Well, if there wasn't no Cold, if it wasn't a Cold War, lots of things would be different, right?" So I feel like there, if there wasn't a Cold War, there'd be no Taliban, maybe. But there was a little bit more responsibility in the '90s on the part of the West to not just take off, right? They just because Russia was gone, they didn't care. Absolutely.
2: What's happening in Afghanistan, I feel, is another, you know, collective delusion that's being cracked at the moment. You know, we've gone through COVID that kind of cracked our delusions about we're all in it together. We went through BLM that cracked our delusion about race. What's happening in Afghanistan is, you know, something that's been going on for a long time. It's tied up with colonialism. It's tied up with white supremacy it's tied up with invading other countries without any kind of accountability. And Afghanistan, that's been happening over and over and over again. The US and NATO allies have switched sides constantly, arming groups constantly. And right now, with the withdrawal of US troops, there is you know a ton of weapons that are now again being handed over to the Taliban. I don't know if you've guys seen images of the Taliban with these really quite swanky M-16, you know, automatic machine guns. Those are U.S. weapons. So there has to be some sort of accountability. And I want to say one thing, because on the way here I was thinking about, you know, how do I explain to the British public why this matters to all of us? And what I thought is that, you know, it's the same people that right now are not evacuating people that worked alongside British troops in Afghanistan. These are the same people that are responsible for 150,000 COVID deaths. These are the same people that will not respond to a climate emergency. They're the same people that send troops to another country, but when the troops come back, don't provide mental health care. It's the same people. And the thing that terrifies. Those people is that if we start connecting those dots Mm. and start acting as a collective and start recognizing that the suffering of Afghan women and Afghan children, Afghan men, is very much tied up to everything that's happening to all of us.
0: So Zalash, can you tell us about the Refugee Trauma Initiative and what you're currently doing with Afghan people, presumably focusing on women and children, but we've seen some horrible images of young men falling off planes and, you know, could you please tell us a little bit about what you're doing?
2: Sure. So I I set up an organization about five and a half years ago in response to the Syrian refugee crisis. And everything that you spoke at the beginning of this program about trauma, it's what we work on. Because, you know, when you experience violence in the way that Syrians or Afghans right now are experiencing, you really need support to be able to come back to real life and to reconcile yourself as a human being with what's happened to you. And so my organization is preparing to support Afghan women and children who will be arriving in Europe, hopefully, if they can get on a plane. Um, I'm also partnering with Choose Love to call on the British public to write to their MPs, to your MPs, Mm -hmm. um, to ask to evacuate women and children and families, and particularly people who have collaborated with the British government for the last 20 years to evacuate them now. There's only 11 days left. Um, The deadline to take out the troops is on the 31st of August, so we're really running against time. And we're trying to mobilize communities here and in the US to um, protest, to write to their representatives, to make as much noise as humanly possible about
0: the disaster that's unfolding
2: in Afghanistan.
0: What would you most like the American and British governments to do right now?
2: The most important thing that needs to happen right now is for civilian evacuations to take place. That's the most important thing. A lot of what's happened wasn't inevitable, but there's. it's too late to do some of the things, as awful as that is. So what we need to do is, first of all, make sure that people who are really at risk, that means human rights activists, women's rights activists, journalists, artists, people who worked alongside the British and the US troops, that they're out as soon as possible. And that requires coordination of all the international agencies on the ground, the US and the UK army, to do that. And it requires political will. There needs to be a decision to do that. And then a continued support... To Afghanistan, This is a 42-year-old disaster that is going to keep going, so we need to keep highlighting what's happening. We need to keep supporting organizations that are working on the ground. And, you know, I don't even want to mention this because it genuinely makes me feel awful even thinking about it, but governments are gathering to recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government. I know. And And that is just... It's, it's. I can't tell you the grief that I feel just thinking about the fact that a misogynist, racist group that governs with force and power mm-hmm. is going to be yes. the legitimate government of Afghanistan that we're going to be dealing with now. And we've
0: heard horrible stories about 12-year-old girls being taken away and things like that. You just go, "What? who do... Nobody wants to be left there. Like, you can't get everyone out. How... Like." what can we do after this window closes and they've got as many people out as there is political will for and as as we can campaign for, what can we do then? I mean, I think it's a question of the sequence of
2: things that need to be done. Right now, it's the evacuations of people that are most vulnerable and need to get out. That's the most important thing. I was was reading
0: about some gay people trying to get out today, like how awful it's going to be if any queer people get left.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's all minority communities. All minority communities. I mean, one of the things that happened in the '90s is that the Taliban and the other militia groups killed the entire intellectual class. So that means writers. That means anyone who can raise their voice for you know to resist them. That's again is at stake. It, and it's Afghanistan is going through a trauma that's been happening to us over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's it's I genuinely like I've been in a state of shock, grief, and trauma for the last two weeks. And it's, you know, everyone who's been involved in Afghanistan for the last, since the 70s, is accountable for this.
0: Okay, so how can we help you giving to Choose Love so that you have uh, funds to resource people who are now fleeing as refugees? Did you have resources when you left?
2: No, I mean, my family left, you know, and... and 6 a.m. in the morning with nothing. Um, You know, somebody was asking me the other day, can we have a picture of you guys in Afghanistan? And I said, no, we left all of that Mm -hmm. behind. Um, Yes, so what you can do is give to choose love, where I'm working with them and, you know, they're working with other Afghan leaders to get the money where it's most needed, right to your MP. 20,000 refugees, it's not enough.
0: How many should we be taking?
2: I don't think that's the right question to ask. 20,000 doesn't cover the number of people that directly work with the British government. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and do the math on the numbers. I think we need to take as many people as we can.
1: Um, as I listened to her describe the history, I grew up in India, and my memory of Afghanistan, which is 70s and 80s, was a... soup Kabul was super liberal. My parents were like, oh, it's like Paris. They really did feel mm. that way. And we had doctors and professors who were women who were Af- from Afghanistan. They were friends of my mother. And I feel like now the picture of Afghanistan in the Western media, and I think for many people who've started thinking about Afghanistan in the last 15 years... Is some war-wrecked, you know, all the women want to cover their head. It's not about Islam. It's about, and I think we spoke about this before, it's about taking an entire culture and painting it in colors that served America and America's wars and the Cold War and all that stuff. And I feel like this country has become trapped in this imagery. And that to watch that happen is, you know, it's really... I feel grief, and I'm not even Afghani, but I feel grief for women, I do. I feel grief for women because this is a systematic takedown of afghani women and it will reverberate for generations and that's what i think we need to try and help with in every small way Do you know i'm going to get those cameos done i'm going to get them done oh, yeah. but i mean that i mean and i hope each of you as you leave here today can ask them one way in which you can help because that will matter well, i think th- it will i agree yeah. with
0: you sindhu and and that leads us on to our next guests So, uh, our next guest today, uh, one is a journalist and presenter whose work focuses on environmental issues and cultural upheaval. Born in Afghanistan, she came to Britain as a refugee, which has shaped her work, creating a unique point of view and a passion for telling stories, uh, especially of fringe and marginalized communities. Please welcome Neil Afar Hedayat. She is joined by a British Afghan model and mental health advocate who is a former Miss England. She and her family moved to the UK in ninety seven as refugees. In light of what's happening in Afghanistan, she's using her platform to raise awareness and campaign for the people of Afghanistan. Please welcome Hamasa Kohistani. <laughs> you guys heard what Zanish said, and she gave us a lot of the political context for this. Nina Far, you did a brilliant documentary about the Taliban. Yes. When you were much younger, you were working for Newsround. I mean, you oh. seem so young now, it seems strange it's, to me that um, you made anything when you were younger, but.
3: Thank you, The Ordinary. It
0: works. Uh, uh, I'm yes. a feminist band.
3: Yes, exactly. Uh, your
0: first thing was a plug for The Ordinary Skincare.
3: <laughs> not sponsored, not sponsored yet. Um, okay,
0: not. Well, listen, she's a brand ambassador. Instagram Live, get on that. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I just journalism and speaking and talking to the public is what I do um a lot of. And I, I made my first documentary when I was twenty-one years old for BBC Three called Women Weddings War and Me. And I took everyone. I know, I know, right? It is amazing face cream. I'll send you the recommend. But um and then I I I'm hosted newsround and I wanted to teach the British young people what Afghanistan was because they'd heard their mothers and fathers mention it constantly, but they've probably thought Where is that? Is is that New Jersey? Where is that? The Isle of Man? I don't know. So I I really wanted them to connect. So we made a film about young Afghan kids who were born at a time when the Taliban didn't exist. This little sweet moment in, in the history of Afghanistan in 42 years where hope was allowed. You were allowed to think about things like skating and dressing up and how exactly do you want to wear your hijab the coolest way? Those things were flourishing. So... My journalism and my work and my documentaries have always taken me to Afghanistan, but my commitment now since last Sunday when all of this started to happen (laughs) to us um, is to tell the British public why this is about us and our history because I went on Question Time this week and the response I got from the British people was overwhelming. A sense of collective understanding, compassion, a, a sense of justice knowing that something wrong's been done to someone here and vulnerable people have been used and exploited. And every night, the three of us, I can promise you, as three Afghan women, go to bed, and it sucks. <laughs> really, it does. And every morning, we wake up and we see the fresh pictures of, of all this stuff and the chaos. And then we might get a text from a friend, or in my case, an, an ex-teacher, Emma Kell, whoop, I know you listen to this podcast. Um, LAUGHTER or we might get a text from a fan or a friend, and all of a sudden we're like, Ugh, it doesn't hurt your throat quite as much. It doesn't, you know, that bolus, you can feel like you could swallow it a little bit. So I just, standing with these two incredible women next to me, it's just important to know that in the last 20 years, Afghanistan has changed, but so has the British public. So has the international community. We have grown up. We have become mature. We understand now what our responsibilities are to these far off places, not in Jersey. Um, so that's what I think has been really incredible.
4: Thank you.
0: <laughs> Hamasa, can you please talk to us as a mental health advocate about how you feel things are going right now for women and children? And like I was saying before, that they. You just see these images of babies being passed over fences and someone said that they're like babies who are being thrown over razor wire fences. And just like what would a mother have to do to throw you know, and to the British, honestly, who've been a colonial force and you've only ever seen them in uniform. You know, what what must be going on, you know, and what what is the mental health toll?
5: Um, I'm in touch with a lot of the Afghan women because they message me directly. So I'm talking to girls and women life in life, like, as they go. And they're messaging me pictures of sitting in basements right now. Three sisters haven't left the basement for two weeks because they're too scared to come out. I'm getting girls that are messaging me saying that we've run away because they killed my father, they killed my uncle. It was my mother and my three sisters, so they burned our house down. We're homeless, we don't have anywhere to go, and now we're just sitting in the borders of Iran. What you guys see in the media... It's a very filtered version of what's happening in Afghanistan, and I think that what people need to ask when they come across pro-Taliban pages or articles in the press um, that are showing Taliban 2.0, yeah, it's like, like non-Taliban. Like please take a moment to speak to an Afghan and let them tell you what's really going on on the ground. Because what you guys are seeing is only a snippet of what we get to see and we're exposed um, to. So that's what you guys need to remember, that this whole propaganda that's going on now in the press and what people are dealing with, 20 years is not that long ago. So our people have still have that trauma with them. Our daughters, our girls have grown up watching their women being lashed 100 times in public because their heels made noise on the pavement. So even though she was in a full burqa, the last time Taliban were in power, if your heels made noise on the pavement or your ankles showed, you would get a hundred lashes. These women are so malnourished, they wouldn't withstand a hundred lashes. Who can withstand a hundred lashes? And all the men are laughing, pointing guns at her. There are pictures of that that happened in our stadium the last time the Taliban were around. That's what our people are fearing because we know that whatever the Taliban are saying to the international committees now and whatever these press uh, outlets are posting and telling that there's this new changed Taliban, that's not the case. It's and, only a matter of time. But can, can I just add to that? Just
3: uh, There's a flip side to it. The three of us shouldn't be here, but we are resilient, strong women that have come here to speak on behalf of those that cannot Afghanistan is full of like badass women like us. Like we're cool, right? <laughs> like we're, we're amazing women, and I'm proud of who I've become. I'm proud of my British-Afghan identity, both sides of it, with all its shitty baggage. I mean, it's that's it's, so it's so awful. Good point. <laughs> but 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 Afghanistan is chock a block with women like us, and I think that's that's something. You know, a couple of days ago, Deborah and Sindhu and everyone, like I saw this image. Huh. No. Give me one minute. I'm fine. I'm fine, right? Yeah. You're fine. You're I'm fine. i
5: fine. fine.
3: You're fine. A couple of days this. ago, there was an image of four women, two days after the Taliban took control, there was an image of four or five women standing with little A4 sheets of paper, in which they said, women's rights, justice for us, in front of the Taliban. Can you, like... I, I I can't. I couldn't breathe watching it because I knew what they were risking. It's more than their lives; it's the lives of their families, 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 family. And yet, it was important enough to stand and do so. There are protests, and there are people going out holding the the national flag of Afghanistan and chanting freedom and justice. We want freedom and justice. You can't kill that.
5: And also to add to your point, the same way that the British public has changed in the past twenty years, so have the. Afghan public and Afghan women, they're not those women that they were the first time Taliban came. All they need is a little bit of encouragement and support, because they're doing things that... A we lot of encouragement and support, like a lot, like, like state but level. We, we wouldn't even dream of women doing what they were doing, as you're saying, or some of the other girls that are speaking up now, they are speaking up, they are making noise, because they've also changed, they have the social media platform, they have people like us... Who are here today making their voices amplified and letting the world hear? So they know that they have advocates out there. And the more we can come together and show them that and give them that hope, the more they can then fight their own battles.
2: I just wanted to add two things, if if I may. Um, The first one is that it's been overwhelming to get messages of encouragement for Afghan women. It's been absolutely overwhelming, and I'm getting, you know, it's it's exactly what we need at a time like this. We need solidarity. But I just want to say something about what's happening. Afghan women don't need saving. We do not need saving. We need protection from violence. The same way that people here, everyone here needs state protection to leave their home and jog in a park and know that they can do that without the fear of violence. Yes. That's what Afghan women need. They have done so much to fight for their rights for the last 40 years. And as far as I know, and I could be wrong, no suffragette has ever been beheaded or stoned for fighting for their rights. Afghan women have, and they do it every single day. So nobody needs saving, we just need to stop but the they, violence. But
3: there's more than that. When I went to Afghanistan in 2007 and 2008, I met prosecutors who were putting bad people in jail, like these badass prosecutors. I met judges. I met female journalists who were going out and doing the reporting that is so vital. I met people in the bureaucratic system, civil service. I met models. I went to Afghan Star. I went and met the Afghan pop stars that were icons of their generation. No, you don't know any of them. But, but these, that's what we're speaking about. We're, exactly. We're not asking for, um, for, for... Solidarity doesn't come from a place of above and below. It's an equality. It's equal. We want solidarity. We want respect that's mutual and help that's mutual. <clears throat> yeah. Um
2: just, just, sorry, just no, one more must... thing because it's super important. I know we're talking about women and that's really important, but Afghan men deserve the same sort of protection. I have three brothers and I don't think my life is worth more than theirs. And just to put in context, 70,000 men have died fighting the Taliban last 20 years in Afghanistan. So I, I think it's about the Afghan people. Of course, women deserve. The respect and protection and all that because sometimes they
3: do it from their own family i think we disagree on this quite fundamentally i hate all men um (laughs) i hate my dad i hate my brother i hate my boyfriend i hate all men i think all men are trash with respect like i do i'm sorry i do because because and and i only need to look at my own family in which my own family would be like don't don't wear dress like Who's gonna tell? I'm 33 year old woman and we're in my own house. Why are you 33? Yes, darling. Oh my
4: God,
3: that is absolutely. But like, but but Af- listen, Afghanistan. <laughs> Afghanistan has its own set of
0: problems. It's not the worst thing that's been said on this panel, but it's not. Uh, it's... I
1: don't know. I don't know. I would
0: debate um, that. Sorry. Um, you have the drive and the value set of a Gen Z, although you are a millennial. Yes. I'm I'm Gen X, so I'm sort of. I, but I'm. Gen- you're gen X. gen X. You're Gen X. But I'm more millennial Gen Z in spirit because of the podcast. Yeah. So, uh, it's true, it's true. Oh, what am I? You're, you're straight down the line, Gen X. <laughs> you are raising Gen Z, so you have no time for these lily-livered li- millennial values. <laughs> I know you well.
1: Okay, fine.
0: Um, it's... <laughs> And I love that there is this sort of debate and disagreement amongst women. We're not all one thing and all Afghan women are not a monolithic group. I am very much of the, I, I think it's the power structures. I don't think it's yes. men. Yes. It's the power structures. It's, and men are fucked as well and given a really horrible deal. I know exactly what you're saying in terms of, uh, power abuse and control and can dynamics. I, can I give an example
3: of why I said it? It's yeah. really important. So, for example, a lot has been said about women not being able to go back to work. Um, so people, women being shooed away from their offices or their place of work, or if they're journalists, mm-hmm. being told not to come in and do the reporting. It's the studio manager that's telling them to do that. It's their fathers. It's the, it's the guard men, because they're all terrorised in the same way. Mm-hmm. That, that, that Taliban mentality seeps into everyone. So if you're um, the editor of a news program and and your anchor is this incredibly talented young woman, you are going to say to her, I love you, I respect you, but you can't come in here because they will come. Mm -hmm. And when they come, they'll shut us all down. So it is a duality that needs to be addressed. It's not a one-way thing. The Taliban are not, they're they're patriarchs. That's what they are. They are a group of men that want to
1: enforce their But you're asking
0: for solidarity from Afghan men. And, and, re- and revolution from Afghan men.
1: Yes, revolution. Revolution. Um, can I, I'm just going to say three things. I'm going to say three whole things. One is um, I moved in the 90s, like these three young ladies. Uh, I moved here, but not for the same reasons. I just came to study and I got a scholarship and then I didn't have to get married to so this guy my mom picked. I was like, I'll go study and come back. And then, of course, here I am. But um, it's always been difficult for me to figure out why... When countries, when women in other countries need help, women in the West think of saving them. I've never understood that because I'm sort of in between. I've never needed saving or help, but I'm also not Western. So, you know what I mean? So, I did need, I, I was a bursary girl, let's put it that way. I was, I got a scholarship to study here. And the only way that I can explain it, and I'm not saying that you guys don't get it, but it's important on this because you said that, is if you had a friend, and you've all had friends at school who needed to borrow some money on the day, it didn't make you better than her. So if you do think that I'm going to give money or I'm going to give, you know, it's because Afghani women are your friends. Think of it like that and you'll never make that mistake, one thing. Second thing is I hope that if nothing else, because, you know, everyone's means are different, you can at least talk to five people, right? Talk to five people and ask them to speak to five people about some of the things you've heard here. It will make a difference. It does make a difference. And it can be so overwhelming to hear what governments have to do. And listen... When we rise up, they have to listen. And the way you make them listen is you get the information out there. And I was going to say a third thing, and I fucking forgot what it was. <laughs> <laughs> It'll come back to you. Yeah, it will. You. But anyway, those are um, the two things.
0: While you think of that, could I ask you, conscious of time, is there anything you came to say today that you didn't get to say, firstly? Yes, yes <laughs>
5: I would love to ask you guys that at this point, I think we know that there won't be any uh, military interference in Afghanistan. So the Taliban are probably here to stay for a little bit. So the best thing to do and what we're asking you guys to do and how you can help the people of Afghanistan is by trying to leverage, pressure, uh, force your government, speak to them that international human rights gets involved and that we have more rights for our people especially the women, because they're the more vulnerable ones. That's why they need a little bit more protection. That's why I think we're so keen on talking about women in particular. But having said that, the collective of the Afghan, like collective consciousness of the Afghan people is that we've been forgotten, we've been left behind, we're abandoned, and nobody cares. So I think that's what we need to do. We need to get some sort of coalition or some sort of human rights, and our governments need to put pressure and put leverage on the Taliban so that they could stick to what they're actually saying. Because we know they're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. They are not going to stick to everything that they've been saying so far. That's all propaganda. We've learned, we've learned our lesson, and that should be a lesson to the world. Like, we've been screaming about this for weeks, we got dismissed. We're screaming about it again for weeks. We're letting you all of you guys know that what you're seeing in the news is the only tip of the iceberg. It's a lot worse than what it is. We need to put uh, pressure on the governments internationally.
3: The only thing I would add is that the collective trauma of the diaspora, right? So that's us. Those of us who are... Were born, we were all born in Afghanistan who aren't there anymore, or the children of people that were born in Afghanistan, the diaspora... It is unfathomable how traumatizing all this is. It is, un I can't express to you, sat in between these two, the sadness, like the drip, drip, drip of the sadness day by day. So I say to the diaspora, any Afghans watching or anyone else who gets this, if you're Syrian, if you're Kashmiri, if you are Kurd or whatever you might be. Love one another, hug one another, be patient with one another. No one's got the solution, but a little bit of kindness, like the way these two have shown me today, Mm -hmm. it just has lifted my mood. So Mm. be kind to one another.
0: Where can we watch your documentary? What's it called?
3: Uh, you can watch it on, I think, the internet. Just look for Nelva Hidayat News Newsround, and it's called The Kids of Kabul. The documentary that I made for the BBC is called Women Weddings War, in Me. But you guys should all just check out my journalism generally, because I do more than just be Afghan.
0: Okay. <laughs> Zalash, is there anything else we can do for you or any links you want us to look at? Anything at all?
2: The campaign that we're running with Choose Love is about an MP action, so writing to your MP right now to ask to evacuate vulnerable Afghans is a really important... Thing that you can do and obviously keep
0: donating the money will go to afghan refugees great um, and it really does make a difference because they need to get voted in again so if you write to them and uh, get as many people as you can to write to them and as sindhu said you might not have a lot of money if you have got a lot of money obviously give it uh if you've only got a bit of money that you think you can spare and you think oh well i'll just you know take a coffee from home this week and i won't go to starbucks or whatever then give it but most important thing you could do is promote it. If you could send this podcast to as many people as possible, it'll come out noon tomorrow because it's a it's a sort of I think an easier listen than a lot of what's out there. And I think that is important because um When things are hard and difficult, and there's no fun in them, people like, oh, I can't look at it. It's so much. We've got the pandemic. Da 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 da. da." Just look away from that. And I think this is an easy and I think you'll agree that these women who've come to speak to us today have been the most extraordinary, glorious advocates. And I want to give them all a huge, huge round of applause.
1: What do you think of your third thing? Yes. What was your third thing? Is so my singing. third thing was nothing can legitimize the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Just yes. believe that today and just take that with you. Yeah, take that with you. It doesn't matter what your more educated uncle, cousin, aunt might say to you. Believe that, just like you believe anything about yourself. You know, Whatever it is about yourself, your name, you believe that's your name, just believe nothing can legitimize the Taliban. That's one thing. The other thing I wanted to say is it can. sometimes we think, well, if I'm doing something so easy, am I really helping? Do you know that feeling? You think, am I really helping just by doing something so easy? Yes, but if you need to make it hard, (laughs) here's what I suggest. (laughs) Educate yourself enough that when you have to talk to someone who says, well, we shouldn't interfere. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't interfere. Those women are allowed to choose how, blah, blah, blah just so that for five minutes you can have a talk with that person and not be, like, the worst guest ever or, like, the most annoying family member, but just for five minutes, just put in, just you know, just put in the hard work of saying that's wrong.
0: I've become so unfun in the pub. Oh, oh my God. My God. <laughs> yeah, I and didn't realise it in out how unfun I'd become in the pub, but I, I can't stop myself now. If I hear someone saying something, yeah, I'm like, what? but, but yes, just to... Mm, and I see their face go, oh, it's Deborah
1: again. But you have to do that. And then direct them to the podcast or direct them somewhere else. But that's kind of, make yourself a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then you know that, well, <sighs> fuck, that was enough. And so, then you kind of are happy as well.
0: So few stories about comfortable revolutions um, in history. Oh, remember that comfortable revolution in 60? Um Okay, so our final guest today has been both a guest and a coordinator for Refugees at Home. Born in Khartoum in Sudan, she came to the UK in 2015 as an asylum seeker. Please welcome Arish Osman. Where are you going? Yeah, yeah. You, we still need you, You are co-host. You don't get off. You're not. You're not she, she's clocking out. She's got the punch card. Okay, Arish, Hi. thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thank you, but um, you've got me late After all these cool girls, I am so quiet and I'm so boring. No. And if you ask me a question, I might just answer a question, or I might just not answer it. So, <laughs> I am.
1: This has turned out to be way more weird than I thought it was. <laughs> it's just like you can ask me something, I may answer, I may not. <laughs> okay, this is just Arish, big I know that you are a brilliant advocate
0: for refugees at home because you yourself were someone who was seeking refuge in the UK. Mm-hmm. And how was it for you when you arrived here? What was the UK like? Was it welcoming? Was it scary? Was it overwhelming? Um, all those things. <laughs> I don't
1: want you to fall off the stage. <laughs> I'm so scared. Stay there. I'm, I'm not going to fall off. No, I'm scared. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah, so it was... Um, it's a very different experience um, with the government and with the people. So um, you might know the asylum process in the UK is so, like, Complex and mm-hmm. you can't understand it even if you speak English, you've lived in the country for so many years.
0: They do that on purpose yeah. to make it <laughs> yeah. difficult yeah. so people give up. It's
6: so difficult. So um, it was difficult dealing with the government, with the Home Office, but on the other hand, refugees at home, uh, because it's just people, British people, very nice, very kind, they open their homes to refugees in need and asylum seekers in need. Hashtag so...
0: not all British people. No, but I'm glad <laughs> well, but it's some. nice that some. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And lots. I would say, you know, yeah Yeah. so So, yeah it was um
6: my dealing with refugees at home and with the host was incredible and still is because i'm I'm involved in the charity and working as the placement coordinator so um
0: so when you arrived here did you got your papers but you didn't yet have anywhere to live no what was the process with refugees at home
6: so, um, when you get a refugee status, the home office say, welcome, come to a country, and then the second letter is, you should evict this property in 28 days.
0: And so, <laughs> that's where be refugees at home. Be our guest, be our guest, <laughs> be our... Bye-bye. Uh, on your bike. Okay. So, that's, that's very British. It's... it's so British, though. It's so passive-aggressive. <laughs> you are so welcome to leave.
6: <laughs> so, that's where refugees at home comes in, um... Um, I heard about them and I was homeless, was sleeping on buses and um, in the park uh, so refugees at home offered me a really lovely uh, placement with the family for a couple of months and yeah uh, it just all I needed to um, get back on my feet again and what were the family like? so lovely, they're vegan though wasn't they? <laughs>
0: good for the planet and also know, for female animals but it's not fun, I it's, not fun. it's not fun it's i'm, not fun. I'm it's so not sorry fun. emily I'm but you're you're lovely but yeah
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah but it's a bit tricky if you've not previously been vegan to suddenly be thrust in along with all the other trauma yeah so it's also
1: very tricky if you like ice cream dude it's just oh, tricky
0: i know i know so lovely people not a lot of brie <laughs> not a lot of uh, chicken sandwiches. So, uh, but how did you adapt to that? Did you just smile and nod politely and thought... Oh.
6: Yeah, I thought I might, might need to turn to a bird or something, but... Um,
0: did but... you think all British people were vegan at that point? I no, we... no, not <laughs> really, no.
6: I thought there should be a minority.
0: <laughs> so you were staying with the minority, so that's, you know, it's good. Uh, and you... Uh, but they were a lovely family, really cool. uh, Were there kids in the family?
6: No, they're just um, partners and yeah, we watch film together, we go to the parks, they introduce me to their friends and family and I became part of the household. It was just so loving and I think that's what refugees need actually because you have all this trauma coming from your home and travelling and I came from Africa so you go on uh, like the lorries and you cross the sea and all that and just you flee from the police forces and the last thing you want to see is a policeman or a police officer. So I think what Refugees at Home is doing is really great because you just see people um, mm-hmm. welcoming you. So no titles, no, no trauma.
1: Mm-hmm. So say someone here wanted to get involved with Refugees at Home or they knew someone get who get in could... touch with the
6: Refugees at Home. Yeah? Yeah,
1: but what's the procedure roughly?
6: Um, so you just get in touch with us. And um, if you have a spare room and you would like to welcome a refugee into your home... We will send a home visitor to your house just to check you're all right. And.
0: (laughs) To
1: make sure you're not vegan.
0: (laughs) So you would get in touch, if you have a spare room, you get in touch with refugees at home. Refugees come home and give you a home visit to make sure it's not a basement and, you know.
6: Yeah, Yeah, and just check the accommodation and you're ready to go. We will match you with a refugee um, in need of accommodation. We get referrals from Refugee Council, from the Red Cross. Um, They do the assessment with the guests. We call them guests, clients. And uh, we'll make the match. We will make sure that every guest is suitable to be hosted and every host is suitable to host.
1: And do you get, like, is it how long or is it depending on the guest? It depends on on your availability. Oh, your availability. Both
6: of them, yeah. So placements can go from one to two nights, two years. So, it depends on you and your availability and how much you um, connect with your guests
0: and you would like them to stay. Areej, okay. also, I did Refugees at Home when we went away for Christmas. You did, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, we went away for Christmas. So, I met many of, many of you will know that um, Tom and I have had Steve Ali living with us for four years now. And it's been amazing. And we've had, you know, he's you know, very much our family. And I adore him. And we are completely, you know, connected. But uh, that was not through Refugees at Home. But we went away for Christmas. And so, because we were going up north, the flat was free, so I contacted refugees at home, and uh, they sent us a young Kurdish man uh, who was gay and uh, had to run at short notice, basically. And it was the most amazing experience. He came, we met him, I took him to a Grace Petrie concert. Um, because it was Christmas and she always has a Christmas concert, he could not have. Be, he was amazed because there was this lesbian punk band on stage singing um, "I want to kiss you in the street where everyone can see." Sorry, I like crying saying this. He was so like he was like this is legal here. He was just like his eyes, and I was like the fact that they're singing it in a kind of an angry way tells you it's not fully resolved. But <laughs> um, there's no acoustic guitar here, you'll note. Um, Uh, but yes and there's this big queer celebration that was the first thing and then we went away Steve made him a Christmas stocking because you know he said I'll pay it forward he'd never had a Christmas stocking before and he gave one to Ari and it was really beautiful and when we came back uh, some people said to me you're just going to leave a stranger in your house like you know they could just come back and the telly's gone and I was like well what if it is it's insured But (laughs) but I highly doubt it will be because if I have an Airbnb guest yeah they might fuck off with the telly but all a refugee has is their connections. Yeah, yeah. That's all they have is their reputation and their connections and someone being kind who will tell somebody else, yeah, they're a good person. It's all they've got. We came back to the flat it was cleaner than it's ever been. <laughs> there was sort of, you know, biscuits left for us and stuff like that. It was absolutely beautiful. And so my recommendation is if you've got, if you're going away on a holiday, you could give your house to some Afghan refugees who will be in your life forever, I reckon. Absolutely. Because if you turned up somewhere absolutely traumatized, and someone said, "Well, this is how the washing machine works," and there's food in the fridge, and um, here's fifty quid if you need anything, and we'll be back in two weeks, You'd or, love it. oh, wouldn't you just be? Wouldn't that be such a healing to your trauma, not to have to tiptoe around anybody else? So that is something I can recommend. You might be going away summer, Christmas, whenever. Um, you might have some people have a spare house you know, in the country or something like that. And that's very controversial, but not if you put refugees in it. <laughs> um, you can invite some refugees in to your second home, I'm saying. Less controversial. My experience has only been amazing. Hashtag uh, not all refugees are no, saints and nor do they have to be.
1: But, but also, that's my experience. But also, to carry on for what Deborah's saying, you don't try it. Just get in touch. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get in touch and you think, "Oh, this is not for me," that's fine. When we start to open our minds to new behaviors, there's a higher chance of us acting out on that behavior mm-hmm. than if we did never tried. And English people are always so polite. They're like, "I don't want to go there," and then you know, I don't say yet. No, go there. Say mm-hmm. no, but try it. Open your minds, because if, if we are going to help Afghani refugees or any refugees, we've got to we've got to do a little bit of what's uncomfortable until we feel like maybe mm-hmm. we can. Maybe we can't, but try.
0: And. Please, can I just say one thing about being careful? Do not do this. Stay as long as you like. One week later, I can't deal with this. Please don't do that. Say, I would. We'd love to give someone a placement for a week, and then we need the room back. But if it went well, we'd love to offer them another week because then you've given someone a wonderful week, healing week. They think you need the room back. They don't feel rejected. Don't say stay for three months if you know that you might actually. Any of us could go go. Oh, this chemistry isn't working or whatever. It's your home, so please just offer something small, and then offer more and offer more and extend. Um, and you know, there came a point where I said to Steve, "As long as Tom and I have a roof, you have a home. That's it." And but that didn't. I didn't say that day one because it's not. It's not kind and it's not fair and it's not solidarity. Thank you so much for doing my job for me.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you like to say Arish Um, what would you like to say just one last thing so we really need home visitors so if you um, have a professional background in home assessment like making home visits and home assessments please do get in touch because we have been overwhelmed with lovely um, 250 host applications since last week which is incredible we really need home visitors to do the visit so do get in touch if you um, oh, for home visitors.
0: Oh, so you might have a room, but you could go and check other people's rooms. That would be quite interesting anyway. <laughs> I, I love looking around other people's houses. Can I do that? Um, uh, loads, of, loads of Afghan refugees turned up in Manchester, and you need rooms in Manchester, is that true? Uh,
6: where do you get that from? I don't
0: know. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I was asked to do some PR on it. Yeah. Oh, great, great, great. No, Af- only refugees uh, we at home need, asked me to do PR we, about we it. We need
6: horse in Manchester as well. Yeah, yeah, sorry, you say.
0: Um,
5: I, I've been contacted by the donation centres in Manchester and around London, so if anyone wants details, I, can post, I post them on my, all my social media. I constantly post news about Afghanistan because I'm the one that's in touch with most of them. So if you guys want to volunteer anything or donate anything, please do get in touch and I can give you all the details. It's Manchester and Watford at the moment. And where, where do they get in touch? Um, I can give you the details. There's donation centres and they do volunteering. And there's 50 families in uh, Manchester and about 32 in uh, Watford at the moment, but more are coming.
0: And is there a a URL or we just put this in the show notes? Is there a website or a a name?
5: It's literally people's because it's all volunteers. So it's one person's contact and they're in charge of it. So I can... There's no website. It's a
0: grassroots network. Get in touch. Uh, We'll put something in the show notes with an email address or something. How about that? Anything else that you came to say that you didn't get to say.
6: Thank you so much for the opportunity and just thank you so much for everybody or everyone just got in touch with the, with the refugees at home since last week, our volunteers, our admin volunteers, our hosts, our home visitors, just really overwhelming. Thank you.
0: Arrange <clears throat> do you need homes all over the UK or is it in specific places? Do you need homes all over the UK or is it specific places? It's a national... um, It's a national thing. So even if you're in the country or something... Yeah, you do get in touch. Yeah, okay, all over all right. the UK. I'm um, sorry, sorry, that's so London of me. So even if it's not London, <laughs> what you're saying is, I mean, people have had a lot of trauma to then go to not London. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still, to, I'm here to do
6: my U, um, UK residence test thing. So I was going to sound sophisticated and say Ireland or North Ireland and all that, but I don't want to mess it up. So okay. just
0: everywhere in the UK. Everywhere in the UK, including Northern Ireland. God, I'm sure I'll get cancelled for saying that. Uh, That's your fault, Areej, if I get cancelled. I may soon be coming to work for refugees at home full-time because my position here is frankly tenuous. Um, Arish Osman, you promised not to be funny. You lied. You were hilarious throughout. That part about the vegans, that's a stand-up routine. Can you... do five on that I'll I, write, I write might, five minutes on that with you after this episode I might be kicked out so <laughs> not at all a rich husband everybody thank you to The show and leave us feeling on top of it and ready for action. Uh, we have a musician we had on recently on a Zoom guilty feminist. She writes songs, she sings in her punk band, The Tuts. Uh, it's a mashup of punk and pop. Please welcome to the stage the incredibly talented Nadia Javits! Thank you.
7: my name's Nadia, I don't know if my- is my mic on? No! It's not! Mr. Soundman, can I please have the mic So I I missed the sound check, by the way, because I- I made a mistake today. I stupidly decided to drive into (laughs) 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 Soho,
1: And then I got to like Holborn,
7: and suddenly like the tension started to build, and I was like, there's people everywhere. (laughs) It was close, you know. And then I thought, and then it just kept diverting me round and round. And then before I knew it, I was like crying with my phone in the hand on Google, my hand on Google Maps, one hand on the wheel, don't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, and I was just like, <laughs> and then I was like, what am I going to do? So I like, called my boyfriend up and then just blamed it all on him. I was like, this is all your fault. Because tonight he bought tickets so we could go see the streets And uh, I know, right, but I can't be fucked. (laughs) Like, I've been, like, all week, I've been in this summer rock camp and my band, I've had five little minions uh, between the ages of 10 and 11. And um, I've been trying to get them to write a song and in the end, well, let me just tell you what happened. Wow. So I had five 10 to 11-year-olds... And let's just say it was an achievement if we could get at least three of them on the stage to perform at the end of each day. But bless their hearts, they managed to write a song and it went like this. Sky don't cry, sky don't cry, there's no need to be shy. So like, all week, that's all I've had in my head. And I'm like, what 10-year-old comes out with sky don't cry? What does that even mean? Who knows? But sky don't cry. There we go. So so yeah, I had a breakdown and I also called the producer Tom, who uh, managed to calm me down. And then I decided to drive all the way back home and just get on the underground. <laughs> but here I am. So, I'm going to do a song called uh, I Hate Boris. Uh, obviously, you know what this song is about. Uh, but please look out for the lyrics uh, about um, some of the brown Tories. Because isn't it great? We have so many brown people in power. Yes. Preeti Patel. <laughs> Sajid Javid who by the way I'm not related to (laughs) and uh, of course Rishi Sunak I mean good thing I didn't take his advice otherwise I wouldn't be a musician because he told us all to retrain (laughs) so anyway this song is called uh, I Hate Boris and uh, towards the end there's a line that says about Sajid Javid you're a brown uncle fester who hates his ancestors (laughs) (laughs) I hate the weather and I hate Boris Johnson. I hate Sajid Javid because he's brown and goes around town with his Tory gang. I think he hates himself. I think he hates himself that Tory. and he Then he said that we're bank robbers, but you're the one stealing in broad daylight. What the hell? Pre Patel! You think you're moving forward, but you're backwards and you're bordered You're brainwashed, you're whitewashed. For the marginalized, are lost. Tory tears wash away all the truth. I fear you empower the youth. Never choose you to vote in a voting booth. I, Dave, switch up the truth. You're a disgrace to the human race. I can't stand to look at your face. Laura I hate the weather And I hate Boris Johnson Thanks. Uh, So, uh, uh, so, yeah, so I'm going to do a song called I Can't Marry You. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like I should. I mean, I would marry you, Nelifa. I totally would. But I feel like you should sing this to your boyfriend. Actually, Nelifa and I, we, we were on this amazing photo shoot a couple of years ago called, like, hashtag trailblazing Muslim women. And uh, we, blazed the trail. we blazed the trail. And uh, yeah, I remember just like chatting shit in the toilets, like, at some point. It was great. It's amazing. But does anybody know what an Islamic marriage is, is called? Anybody? Yes. A Nikar. or oh, Nika. Nikar. And so I was in a relationship with someone for eight years. And you know what? Like, he was actually... He was amazing. He made me feel so secure. He... Yeah. I felt like, you know, that, that inner child was always embraced. Um, but there was just one thing that just wasn't there. And I, I just wasn't getting laid. Um <laughs> I mean, it was really weird. Like I don't know. Maybe he became like this fatherly figure, and like no one wants to shag their dad. I mean, like hopefully. But um, so yeah. So and then his sister got married, and then I met his parents, and they were like putting the pressure on. Like you know, when are you two going to get married? You should. You got to get in a car. You got to make it halal. And I was like, what? Um, and one day I was sitting in his bedroom, and the mum and the sister came in, and they were putting a lot of pressure on us. And I thought at that point he would like back me up and be like, lay off. But he just, like, got up, walked out, went and had a bath. <laughs> and I was like, great. And then I was left with them two. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of, like, what this song is about. And then, you know how, like, with some weddings, there's, like, 50 billion ceremonies? Like, for God's sake, what is this now? I know, it's like seven days... Um, So I walked into his. There was one ceremony that was within his house, and like the men were upstairs, just like smoking shisha, and all the women were downstairs. And I walked in late, and they all turned around and looked at me, and I was like, "Hi." And and then the mum was like, "This is what should we call him? Because this is Steve. All right, let's just pretend Steve is a Muslim man. (laughs) So Steve, the Muslim man. So I walk in, and the mum's like, "This is Steve's wife to be." And I was just like, ha, that's the first I've heard. And they all laughed, but it was, it was just really weird. And um, I realised I had to get out of that. So this song's called I Can't Marry You. You said you want to marry me, but you never even asked. Your mum and sister cornered me when you went to have a bath. Get in a car, make it hello. I don't really want to end up just like my mum and dad. Because they got divorced. I'm at your sister's wedding and I feel out of place. Everybody's here with a miserable face. Oh, a waste of money Your homophobic cousins aren't funny And I don't really want to end up just like my mum and dad And I can't marry you It's not in my truth And I can't admit, I can't commit But you're forcing me away You're forcing me to say got this weird dynamic where I'm the baby and you're the missing piece the dad who walked out on me we've got a lot of love but we don't make love but I don't really want to end up just like my mom and dad because they got married young when my mom was 19 and sacrificed their youth to raise the family tree and I'm so privileged I'm living my ancestors' dreams And I don't really want to end up just like my mum and dad And I can't marry you It's not in my truth And I can't admit, I can't commit That you're forcing me away You're forcing me to say You're forcing me away You're forcing me to say I fancy other people anyway
0: Thank you, thank you When I said with music from Nadia Javit, you went, oh, no. No, I mean, I, that's <laughs> how it sounded to me. D- Tom, do we need a bit more applause to tackle to the end? Or are you all right? You, can, you, can you make it work? Make it work. Okay. okay, thank you. Tom so let's get everyone, making it work since 2015. Yeah. <laughs> this is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our...
1: When you make decisions for
6: your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.